first recorded pizza delivery is said to have taken place in Naples, Italy, in 1889, when Queen Margarita requested a pizza from a purveyor across the city, and this was ostensibly the origin of both the Margarita pizza and pizza delivery in the region, when they developed a pie that would be both delicious and deliverable across the city in that way. The Great Depression, which collapsed economies around the world, seems to have put a damper on the slow but burgeoning, primarily blue-collar-focused world of food delivery in the United States at the beginning of the 20th century. But in 1944, the New York Times wrote a piece in which they explained the concept of pizza to non-Italian immigrant New Yorkers, and this at the time relatively unfamiliar and unpopular American version of this Italian dish started popping up all over the place, in part because it was cheaper to make than the then-staple American casual fast food option, the hamburger, and in part because it was easier to make in bulk and sell over time, and easier to make and deliver, something that was less successful both economically and practically with burgers and other existing American favorites. The defining moment for modern food delivery, though, was when Americans started moving to suburban areas en masse post-World War II. Previously, delivery made sense in some limited few circumstances, but most people in cities, where folks actually ate out on a semi-regular basis, rather than preparing their own meals at home, as was more likely to be the case in most rural areas, These people in cities could just walk a few blocks and have access to many different food options. Delivery was kind of redundant within that context, and it was unnecessary in the opposite rural context. Now that folks were living in one area and commuting to work in another, though, it was perhaps still possible to procure food in that same walkable way during the day while at the office, but it was unlikely back home removed as many such homes tended to be from mixed-use economic areas where restaurants could be built. Because of pizza's aforementioned deliverability-augmenting traits, pizza places tended to be the first, and for a while, the only, restaurants that would deliver to the suburbs, which massively increased the popularity of pizza in the United States in the 1950s. This trend continued, with more restaurant types adding delivery to their offerings in order to compete with other restaurants and to serve this, on average, wealthier, suburbanized customer base in subsequent decades. Continuing this tradition, in 1994, an American pizza chain called Pizza Hut took the first-ever online food order. The service they provided, called PizzaNet, was incredibly limited in scope. They only delivered to customers in part of the city of Santa Cruz, California, though this initial run was successful enough that it was followed by another pizza-focused delivery company called CyberSlice in late 1996. Even before CyberSlice hit the scenes, though, in 1995, a company called Worldwide Waiter 
was founded in the Bay Area, offering delivery from 60 different restaurants in and around Silicon Valley, allowing users to get delivery even from food establishments that did not themselves offer delivery. This company eventually refocused on catering for offices and meetings and group events and changed its name to Waiter.com, but that initial business model, though seemingly too cumbersome for the early web, about a decade before the first smartphones would be introduced, later became more viable, as evidenced by the slew of restaurant delivery services that have arisen in the years since, many of which have become massive, though not always because the businesses themselves are profitable, or even close to profitable. What I'd like to talk about today is the advent of these newer, smartphone-era food delivery services, their impact on the restaurant industry, and what's happening now that the downsides of some of these services are becoming more apparent and economically pressing. You're listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. According to the National Restaurant Association, more than 110,000 restaurants and other eating and drinking establishments were forced to shut down, either temporarily or permanently, in the United States alone in 2020. That means about 2.5 million people who work in this industry found themselves without jobs, and sales fell by around $240 billion out of an expected total of about $899 billion. Full-service restaurants, in particular, sit-down establishments that serve their offerings to people on-site, indoors, were hit especially hard, as some other facets of the industry could more easily and inexpensively pivot to align with the pandemic shutdown reality, offering more takeaway options, opening up food trucks, and expanding their seating to incorporate open-air spaces in a way that's more difficult for restaurants that typically offer up ambiance as part of their value proposition. That hasn't stopped many of these entities from trying their hand at other models that might help them survive the COVID era intact, though. And while these experiments vary greatly in scope and scale and shape, many of them latched on to turnkey concepts offered up by outside companies, often delivery-based opportunities that allowed them to focus on the food while a delivery company handled everything else. The article I'd like to start with today comes from the Wall Street Journal, and it's entitled, Restaurants and Startups Try to Outrun Uber Eats and DoorDash. As that headline implies, while these food order, food delivery companies have helped some restaurants and other food and beverage-focused businesses survive, and in some cases even thrive, throughout the COVID-19 pandemic, their newfound dominance is beginning to feel, to some of their customers, more like a stranglehold. And that power over these restaurants' financial future has led to quite a few outright abuses, more than a few delivery service-favoring policies and behaviors, and more recently, a small movement within the restaurant scene aimed at freeing these companies from that alleged stranglehold via alternatives that allow them to continue focusing on the food without as many of the downsides of working with the currently most prominent entities in this space. 
Before we dive into that, though, let's take a few minutes to talk about how the world of food delivery services typically works. Companies like DoorDash, Uber Eats, Deliveroo, and Grubhub, among others, all operate in the food delivery space and offer very similar services. For a sense of the scale of the food delivery space these days, Deliveroo, which is based in London, brings in around half a billion pounds a year and employs about 2,300 people, alongside tens of thousands of officially self-employed delivery couriers. Grubhub, which merged with another similar company in 2013, brings in about $1.3 billion in revenue each year and employs not quite 3,000 people, with tens of thousands of drivers that are not officially employed by the company. DoorDash brings in nearly $2 billion each year and employs just over 3,000 people, with a staggering 200,000-ish drivers who, again, are not officially employed by the company. And Uber Eats, which is a subsidiary of the ride-sharing company Uber, brings in nearly $5 billion a year and has around 20,000 not officially employed drivers in their courier force. These companies all have apps through which customers can view local restaurant listings and find food to order, either from an individual restaurant or, in some cases, from a list of food that is undifferentiated in terms of source from the perspective of the customer, which at times can encourage ordering from multiple restaurants on a single order. Part of the service these apps provide, then, is potential exposure for their restaurant clients to new customers. They also typically provide the payment system that allows customers to pay for their food within the app, and they then turn around and pay the restaurants for the food after taking their cut. And these food app companies generally handle the delivery management, including paying the couriers, the delivery drivers, for making those deliveries as well. For this collection of services, the delivery companies generally charge the restaurants or other food and beverage purveyors somewhere in the neighborhood of 30% of the order's total cost. And that can vary a little bit when the restaurants have leverage and can negotiate a lower rate. But based on what's been publicly reported on this figure, it seldom dips below 20%. And even that rate is almost unheard of, especially for smaller companies and -and mom-and-pop-style establishments. If you've never used one of these services before as a customer, the ease of use is compelling. You generally just swipe through the app, find something that looks good, tap your screen to add the food that you want to your shopping cart, and then you pay within the app, just like you would pay for anything else on the internet and the restaurant and driver get the information that they need through their own version of the app to make the food and get the food to your door. Depending on where you live, there's occasionally a text message from the driver if they can't find your place, or from the restaurant if they want to clarify something about your order. But otherwise, that's it. It's a fairly friction-free experience, which arguably is part of the value that these apps provide. That said, it's worth noting that these companies have been both incredibly popular and incredibly controversial. It took a while for them to build up from where companies like Worldwide Waiter and fast food establishments like Pizza Hut started out in the preceding decades, 
The initial technologies and their offerings were fairly inconvenient and frictionful and just not very compelling for most people. But once the magical combination of smartphone apps and not technically employed contract workers was deployed, this model took off pretty quickly. And the companies involved almost all used the common in the tech world growth tactic of operating at a significant monetary loss, sometimes for long periods of time, in order to gain market share and brand awareness, before then flipping a switch and ballooning as quickly as possible, using venture capital money as fuel, and hoping to go public before they burn through all that investment cash and then fizzle out. Because of that financial approach, other contenders in this space that used more balanced, sustainable economic models died off pretty quickly, unable to compete with the incredible pace and funding enjoyed by these few survivors. A significant number of mergers and acquisitions also married many of these companies to their earlier foes, resulting in a consolidation-driven near-oligopoly that, according to allegations from former competitors, restaurants, and customers, is exploitative and maybe even illegal in nature, as these companies have seemingly collaborated to reinforce their collective dominance over the industry and again, allegedly, have done so in such a way that both their customers and the restaurants, which are also their customers, have had substantially less choice in this market than they would have had otherwise. This seeming lack of competition has also allegedly influenced how these companies deal with their not-technically employees, the legally, at least, freelance workforce of drivers that their services depend on. As tends to be the case with ride-sharing companies like Uber and other companies that primarily run on so-called independent contractors, the folks who make deliveries using these apps are paid a small fee for each delivery, alongside most or all of the tips that they receive from those to whom they deliver that food. The app companies have all the power in these relationships, and the contractors don't have any real means of fighting back against perceived wrongs, either those they experience individually or those that slowly accrue in how the companies deal with their entire workforce. Consequently, the perception of such jobs, which started out largely positive about a decade ago when Uber innovated the widespread use of independent contractors as a money-saving, rapid-scaling approach to building their service network, the perception of this has gone from intriguing and largely positive to very negative in most parts of the world, with some countries and cities banning the practice and the companies utilizing it outright, and others simmering about it, making periodic threats and gestures, indicating that something should be done, but not yet having done anything practical about it. This shift in perception is largely the result of that asymmetry of power, where the companies hold all the cards and thus tend to play them in their own favor, which generally then costs these contractors time, money, and or rights. And within the food delivery space, that same power imbalance also seems to apply to the app company's relationship with their restaurant customers. In just the short time that these apps have existed and been popular with a mainstream audience, They've all faced numerous labor-related lawsuits, 
Several have faced lawsuits from restaurants regarding additional hidden fees tucked into the percentage that they take from each order, like those charged by Grubhub on phone calls received by restaurants from customers that lasted over 45 seconds, but also from the establishment of so-called ghost kitchens, which are basically restaurants that have no physical location and exist only as spaces in which food can be prepared before being delivered to customers, often with the purpose of competing with other restaurants on or off the service, so the apps can then steal that customer base and either take a larger cut of each sale or pull that restaurant's customers into their app. And in 2019, Grubhub was accused of registering tens of thousands of domain names using local restaurant names as the URL without getting those restaurants' consent first. And when accused of using these domains to prevent those restaurants from establishing their own online platforms instead of using Grubhub, the company said that the restaurants gave them permission to do so, though these agreements were apparently hidden in the legalese of the contracts the restaurant owners signed with the company early on. In October of 2020, a group of restaurants launched a class-action lawsuit against Grubhub, alleging that the company had added 150,000 establishments to the app's listings without getting permission, and in some cases, after they'd asked and permission had been denied. These listings were often inaccurate and misleading, and the company refused to remove the listings when asked. These represent just a very concise selection of the legal and public pushback these delivery companies have faced. But needless to say, they've been more than a little pushy, have walked the line of what's legal and what's not legal, and have taken full advantage of any influence or power they've managed to wrangle in the spaces and geographies that they've entered, which is typical of the Silicon Valley playbook, but it's now being applied through these companies, to the larger restaurant space. Ultimately, though, the final straw for some of these restaurants seems to have been the basic underlying business model that most of these apps use. The percentage taken by these delivery companies is just too high for the restaurants making the food to pay if they're going to continue producing good food without operating at a loss. Many restaurants have been forced to reduce the portion size and or quality of their offerings for delivery orders because of this fee, and some have then been driven out of business by competitors or by ghost kitchens operated by the very apps that forced them to make those quality-reducing changes. The aforementioned Wall Street Journal piece is about some of the alternatives and solutions that have popped up of late some of which involve regulation at the local city level, requiring that delivery drivers receive a certain amount each month, for instance, or putting a ceiling on the percentage that these apps can charge local restaurants for their service. Others, though, like a new app called Spread, are attempting to compete using a different business model. Instead of charging a percentage of each order, Spread charges the restaurant $1 per order delivered, and the restaurants then provide their food to spread to sell to customers at a slightly lower price, which allows the service to make money on the spread between the price at which they buy the food and the price at which they sell the food from these deliveries. 
The restaurants are still paying for this service then, but the cut is typically much smaller than the percentages required by the Grubhubs and Deliveroos of the world. And the declared hope, early on in this new app's existence, is to make this component of the food industry more sustainable for everyone involved. Other companies are entering this space as well, many of them backed by existing entities in the restaurant industry. The fast seafood chain, Long John Silver's, for instance, is planning to introduce an in-house solution for this issue later in 2021, which will use a third-party delivery service, but not one owned by these app companies. The cost was just too high for them because of those hefty per-order percentages. So they're opting instead for a more traditional business arrangement with the delivery company, hiring them for their services, and handling the ordering and payment in-house. A New York-based service called Fair plans to offer a small number of restaurants on their service, but to allow those restaurants to make deliveries themselves, providing that connective order and payment tissue, in other words, without adding the complexity and cost of a contractor-based driver network which, it's worth noting, would also seem to alleviate many of the issues related to that at-times abusive method of acquiring inexpensive labor. Notably, FAIR does charge a percentage of the order as a commission, but it's reportedly far smaller than those demanded by DoorDash and their ilk, which means we may soon see if delivery companies can sustain something akin to the current model without requiring theoretically infinite quantities of venture capital, restaurant-killing costs, and an unending stream of potential contract workers to do so. One more big shift in this corner of the food industry is a pivot toward more pickup options. Chipotle, for instance, is investing in a simpler interface through which folks can order food for pickup via an app or through their website alongside infrastructure upgrades, like more parking spots for people who just want to dash in and grab their pre-ordered meals, and then take them to go. This option would theoretically allow such companies to avoid delivery fees outright, and though it seems unlikely to capture the whole of the app-ordering customer base, many people just don't want to leave their home to get the food after all, which is why they're using such apps in the first place, more and faster pickup options could nudge at least some of that audience in that direction, especially if the experience is good and the prices are lower than they would normally be, and the food is of the same quality that they would get if they ate on site. That might allow these takeout options to be competitive despite the obvious downsides. As of the day I'm recording this episode, this space is in flux, because analysts and owners don't know whether the boom in food delivery that we've seen over the course of the pandemic will continue post-pandemic. Or maybe it will expand as more people get back to work and thus have more expendable income to use on these types of luxuries. Or maybe it will contract significantly, with more people keen to get out into the world, around other people, and away from their homes and workplaces, and thus into actual restaurants again. Some of these companies, then, most of which have never made a profit, despite and partly because of their incredible growth, may go under as trends and tastes change, and the venture capital money dries up. That could lead to more mergers and acquisitions, maybe unifying 
some locales, so just one or two options exist. The survivors, made up of remnants of the several players that operate in those areas today, continuing to provide a semblance of the service they offer right now, but perhaps pivoted in some way to align with that new reality. But this could also open the space up for entirely new options. Maybe permutations of what's come before, a new riff or hybridization of eating in public and ordering via apps, or it could kill off the space almost entirely. The burn rate on the investment money many of these companies have is near infinite, but not infinite. And a significant shift, one way or the other, could consequently consign this moment in food industry history to the same dustbin where no longer terribly relevant competitors like CyberSlice and PizzaNet now rest. The book that I'd like to recommend today is called How to Avoid a Climate Disaster, The Solutions We Have and the Breakthroughs We Need, by Bill Gates. This book is interesting, in part because of its author, somebody who is heavily invested in this space, and therefore biased in numerous different ways, but also because of the approach that it takes to describing the current circumstances in terms of climate change-related aspects of the economy and the technologies that we have to address some of the issues that we face in that space. I personally found the book to be a little bit polemic with certain issues, because Bill Gates has very strong opinions on some of these things, which is not bad, it's just worth noting. But to me, the most compelling thing about this book is that it takes some very complex ideas that are often misconstrued, misunderstood, or miscommunicated in the various news media and explains them very clearly, very concisely, and using numbers and very solid, easy-to-understand examples. If you've done a lot of research in this space already or read other books about it, very little of what's in this book will be surprising or new to you. But the way these concepts are explained, even if you're already fairly expert on them, might provide you with a new way of looking at them and thinking about them, but also explaining them to other people. And if a lot of these concepts are unfamiliar to you, this, in my opinion, would be one of the better books to start out with to achieve a fundamental understanding of why climate change is a thing that we're discussing, what we might do about it, and what the next several decades will probably look like as we try to address this collection of interconnected issues. Now, if any of that sounds interesting to you, consider picking up a copy of How to Avoid a Climate Disaster by Bill Gates. You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. You can find the show notes and transcript for this episode and every episode of the podcast at letsknowthings.com. You can find my other podcast, Brain Lenses, wherever you get your podcasts or at brainlenses.com. And you can find my news-focused daily newsletter at yesterdaysnewsletter.com. Feel free to reach out and say howdy on social media. I'm Colin Wright on Facebook, and at Colin is my name on most of the other ones. Thank you so very much for listening. I'm Colin Wright, and I'll talk to you again next week. Mm